Good, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Joe Shaw. I'm, I hold the Salveson Chair of European Institutions in the School of Law here at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm a member of the, uh, the Gifford Lectureships Committee, and on that basis, I'm delighted to have been invited to chair this evening's lecture uh, with Professor Damod uh, McCulloch. Uh, so welcome to the fourth uh, Gifford Lecture in this series of six lectures entitled Silence in Christian History, The Witness of Holmes' Dog. Uh, Professor McCulloch tells me that uh, there's been, he's, he's slightly changed the order of it, he'll explain that in his lecture, but today he will be talking about the Reformation. The lecture this evening will be recorded and it will be available online on the Gifford website shortly. So now I, now I have great pleasure in handing you over to Professor uh, McCulloch. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. It sounds as if I'm audible. I can hear myself anyway. So is that okay at the back? Uh, apologies to those who uh, uh, went by my synopsis that this is the Reformation today rather than uh, last Thursday. I, I, I've telescoped uh, what would have been lectures four and five into lecture five, so that will be tomorrow. Reformation today. Uh, we left the story uh, in the hands of Desiderius Erasmus uh, on the uh, cusp of the 15th and 16th century. But the papacy and the Western Latin church met its nemesis in the 16th century, not at the hands of the failed monk Erasmus, but from a monastic success story, a deeply conscientious churchman who defied his father to enter the cloister, but then came to reverse everything that that decision symbolized. And historians are interestingly vague about whether to call Martin Luther a monk or a friar. Now, the answer seems simple and should be clear to Anglophones, since the sister order of Luther, Luther's observant Augustinian Eremites in, in England was commonly known as the Austin Friars. Yet that Eremite name is significant, hermit. The Augustine, Augustinian Eremites were friars who behaved like monks, showing ambiguity as to whether they were withdrawn from the world or beggars, mendicants within it. Incidentally, they also, ironically, were the only religious order ever to be founded by a pope. And I think Luther would have had a great consciousness of that. The Augustinians uh, therefore place a high value on mystical contemplation, much more than any other order of friars apart from the Carmelites. And Luther himself, while still in the cloister, was very excited by discovering an anonymous 14th century vernacular German mystical text uh, known as the Theologica Germanica. And he published two editions of it the year before his uh, uh, big campaign against Johann Tetzel and the year after, so 1516, 1518. That looked a rather traditional thing to do for an Augustinian Eremite, but his theology was destined to pull in a different direction. And at the height of his first defiance of the papacy in 1521, he published his own discussion of monastic vows, De Votis Monasticis Martini Luteri Judicium, the judgment of Martin Luther, on monastic vows. Now, this was not a total condemnation of monasticism. But like Erasmus's work, actually three years before, 
Luther emphasized that the monastic life that he knew unjustly re relegated married life to a second-class status in the church, which was wrong. After all, he was drawing on a much more visceral uh, experience of failed expectations than Erasmus, who just failed. There was much worse to say for Luther, much worse. Monastic vows fostered an unhealthy obsession with performing pious works irrelevant to salvation. And this tract was immensely influential. You see two themes in it. Married life is good and justification by faith. Modern Protestants easily remember justification by faith, but they're inclined to forget that equally significant at the time was that first of Luther's preoccupations, the cutting of clerical celibacy down to size, the exaltation of marriage, particularly clerical marriage. Luther still clearly felt ambiguous about the cloister. He did not condemn monastic life. He just pointed out those two great drawbacks. But his equivocation was swept aside during the 1520s in a huge volume of popular fury against the cloisters, which alienated Protestants from monasticism for more than three centuries. And the loss of the regular life concentrated mainstream Protestant worship and devotion more or less exclusively on the parish church. And that can only be regarded as a diminution of the rich variety of religious experience in Western Christianity. And it's possible to argue, and in fact I would argue, that German pietism and British Methodism were attempts to make good the deficit. They were trying to do the things which the parish could not. And one of the immediate consequences of this concentration on the parish was the inauguration of one of the noisiest periods in Christian history, since its first two centuries at least. Noise was the chief characteristic of the Protestant Reformation. And that was the result of the twin messages of De Votis Monasticis. The emerging Protestant churches now had a clergy among whom celibacy was very much the exception. And they had before them the example of cheerful and convivial family life reflected in Martin Luther's table talk. And when these new, mostly married pastors led worship, it was above all to preach, repeatedly to hammer home the message which Luther had rediscovered in his reading of Augustine of Hippo and through Augustine Paul of Tarsus, justification by faith. That theme was common to all the mainstream or magisterial Protestant reformers, not just the Lutherans, but also those who eventually gathered to themselves the distinct description of reformed Protestants. Because in so many ways, apart from that shared belief in justification by faith, they disagreed profoundly with what became developed Lutheranism. And particularly among the reformed, the Reformation embodied not just a, a return to Pauline themes, it rediscovered strands in the Tanakh, the Hebrew scripture, which the church in both East and West had found uncongenial and had quietly forgotten. And one of those rediscoveries was inevitably an encounter with the various degrees of reserve in the Tanakh towards silence, those uh, reserves which I described in my first lecture. Lutheran or Reformed, a central concern of the Protestant preacher was to relate all parts of the Old and New Testaments to the logic implicit in justification by faith, again and again and again.
As a consequence, worship became sermon-centered and pulpit-centered, and church interiors reflected that fact. But it was not the only great change within churches. All Protestant churches destroyed much medieval devotional furniture, here in Scotland more than anywhere else, because of Protestants' rapid embracing of iconophobia, iconoclasm. That mood was actually soon curbed among Lutherans, since early in his career, Luther found theological reasons for destroying as little as possible. But in the, in the Reformed world, it was a constant preoccupation to cleanse the Orgian stables of church interiors. Soon, Reformed Protestants established a vocabulary and theological rationale for their destructive activities. And as we noted last week, that included a great interest in the Byzantine iconoclastic movement of the 8th and 9th centuries. But it relied chiefly on the Old Testament. The gleeful abuse of dumb idols by the psalmist figured highly in condemnations of images from the pulpit or in the roar of psalm singing as French and Dutch reformed Protestant crowds and Scottish crowds too smashed up images in the Protestant uprisings of the 1560s. Even King Henry VIII of England complacently endorsed the iconophobic feelings of his fellow monarch and doppelganger, King David, in scrawled annotations to his beautifully illuminated personal psalter. He scrawled in pencil against noses have they and, and his, so, uh, mouths have they and speak not, eye, eyes have they and see not. He scrawled bene. Good idea, God. <laughs> Protestants valued a second, a second type of noise in their congregational worship besides preaching. New forms of music. Most musical noise became the property of the whole Protestant congregation. The one significant exception was the surviving professionally trained choral tradition in the cathedrals of the Church of England. But even there, no place for silence. The choirs did their work. And with Luther as impresario, Lutheranism joyfully developed vernacular hymnody, while from the 1550s, reformed metrical psalms were a major weapon to spread reformed Protestantism across Europe, probably more influential than preaching in their effect. Only one major reformer kept music at bay from the communal worship of his community, and in fact, he was the pioneer of reformed Protestantism, Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. It's actually interesting that all three leading Protestant reformers, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, were all exceptionally musical. And Zwingli was perhaps the most talented of all of them. Precisely for that reason, he felt acutely suspicious of the seductive power of music because he felt it in himself. It was as liable to lead to idolatry as devotional images. Not surprisingly, Zwingli returned repeatedly and approvingly to the story in the Tanakh of Hannah and her silent praying. He regarded Hannah's witness as far more obviously pleasing to God than the cacophony of sacred music to which the Tanakh all otherwise witnessed. The truest prayer for Zwingli was silent prayer. But how do you apply that to public worship? Not even Zwingli could follow through his own logic to envisage completely silent services in the city of Zurich. 
But what he did stipulate was that the people should normally recite their psalms or prayers not with music or vocalization at all, but silently, while the pastor explained to them what the scripture meant. Zurich's newly purged communion services, the Lord's Supper, did also exhibit real silences, with the bread and wine being taken silently, and with pauses for silent prayer around the scriptural readings, pastor's prayers and sermon. But overall, Zurich services became virtually a ministerial monologue without any music at all. At first, the power of Zwingli's personality seems to have gained general civic consent to this remarkable revolution, though the banning of music impressed absolutely none of his fellow magisterial reformers anywhere else. His loyal, long-lived successor as presiding minister in Zurich, Heinrich Bullinger, yet another musician, made no change in direction during his lifetime for city worship. As a result, right to the end of the 16th century, Zurich services were entirely without metrical psalms, while printers in Zurich were only too happy to be publishing them for other reformed churches. In 1598, the ministers of Zurich finally gave way to pressure from bored congregations and they allowed the metrical psalm to triumph in the city as well. And in what may have been intended as a theological gesture of graceful capitulation, they allowed the first psalm singing in the Grossmünster on the Christian feast of many tongues, Pentecost. The general Protestant attitude to using church buildings was deeply symbolic of a new rupture between individual and communal prayer in the Reformation. Particularly in Reformed Protestantism, churches were now only shelters for congregational worship, with its diet of sermons and hymns. Private prayer was regarded with grave suspicion as potential popery. That meant that normally most church buildings were kept locked when there was no service in them. Well, shades of Scotland even today. There were, it is true, notable exceptions to this generalization. Some big churches remained unlocked. But for purposes which negated devotional silence even more effectively than any official ban. Where they were allowed to, the general public used such spacious church interiors for recreational walking and conversation, particularly in the uncertain weather conditions of Northern Europe. The most famous English example is the long Romanesque nave of Old St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which in spite of the Reformation seamlessly retained its role as Paul's walk for every variety of social transaction, both licit and illicit. Similar practices in the United Provinces of the Netherlands are much more familiar to us in art than literature. That distinctive Dutch genre of paintings and drawings of church interiors, which became so popular in the early 17th century, among which you'll probably know the works of Peter Sandradam. Look at them. They are full of people chatting. You are never alone in church. And equally, the Protestant scheme of salvation was not hospitable to the theological themes of Christian mysticism. It emphasized the imputation, nasty piece of technical jargon, imputation of righteousness by a gracious God. What does that mean? God only attributes, imputes righteousness to us. We have no righteousness of ourselves. We have no saving righteousness. We have nothing in us 
which God would regard as worth saving, but he imputes righteousness in his infinite mercy. Well, that was not promising ground for exploring the traditional mystical preoccupation with union with the Godhead, theosis, about which we've spoken so much already. Luther knew his Theologica Germanica, as we've seen, and he knew the works of Meister Eckhart. But he radically reapplied that principle so dear to Meister Eckhart of Gelassenheit, letting go, apatheia. The letting go now was within the logic of justification by faith, a letting go of guilt, surrender to the power of God, which led not to apatheia, but to an active life in the world, not any unhealthy descent into nothingness. And Luther's break with the mystical tradition was summed up in his hostility to the works of Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, of whom he said, I quote, Dionysius is most pernicious. He Platonizes more than he Christianizes. And Calvin agreed, he said, Dionysius was nothing but talk, talk, talk. <laughs> Interesting case of a Lutheran shoemaker and glove merchant, Jakob Bohmer, end of the 16th century. Bohmer rediscovered for himself the visionary dimension of Christian faith. And he applied it to his own devout Lutheranism. But predictably, roused intense hostility from the Lutheran clergy. There was continent-wide interest in Burma's writings, but unsurprisingly, that interest found great difficulty in finding a home within mainstream Protestantism. It also resulted in one of Burma's enthusiastic followers, the poet Quirinus Kuhlmann, meeting his death burned at the stake in Moscow. Kuhlmann was a sadly paradoxical victim of Russian Orthodox lack of sympathy, with one outcome of Western mystical thought. But his execution for heresy in Moscow was also the result of his being denounced to the Tsar by the local Lutheran pastors. What did this turning away from the mystical tradition mean for the inner devotional life of Protestants in the new churches of the Reformation? The monasteries had gone. So there was no structured forum for either meditation or contemplation. And indeed, Protestants were generally extremely suspicious of Lectio Divina, allegorical readings of scripture, unless it suited their purposes to draw on it when suddenly they rediscovered an interest in allegory. Generally, no. And to begin with, they found it difficult even to frame devotional literature, which might be a vehicle for silence. Hence, in the Church of England, the popularity uh, under Elizabeth I and the early Stuarts of a devotional work, minimally adapted by a, a Puritan clergyman in 1583, from a treatise by the Jesuit, probably most hated and feared by Elizabethan Protestants, Robert Parsons. And the Protestant version greatly outsold its Catholic original. So if one seeks silence among European reformers, it's to the radicals, not the magisterials, you look. It's ironical that that Theologia Germanica, the Theologia Deutsch, that medieval work which Luther had republished, became taboo for mainstream Protestants, precisely because a whole raft of radical leaders thought it was a very good thing. Now, not all radicals went in the direction of silence. Many were just as inclined as the magisterials to banish silence from their worship with their preaching and their own hymnody. Many radicals revived the ancient universal practice of adult baptism 
And so a pub public testimony of informed faith, repeated regularly in public, and an acute sense of identification with a gathered community of saints became the true church for many. This was a set of church uh, people of the martyrs. Martyrdom was a sign of the true church, something to which I'll return. Defenders of infant <laughs> baptism invented a hostile Greco-Latin label to describe such radicals, whether militant or not, as anabaptistae, rebaptizers, which of course no adult baptism proponent would have accepted as a label. They weren't rebaptizing, they were baptizing. But that's the label which stuck. Anabaptists, a scattergun term of abuse during the Reformation. So noisy radicalism was as noisy as magisterial Protestantism. Uh, one variety, for instance, in, the Swi in Switzerland in the 1520s terrified even some radical noisy leaders because women began reconstructing Christianity for themselves. Opinions which had been previously confined to mystics and nuns were now heard on the streets. Medieval women religious had been able to turn in their imaginations to intimate encounters with God, not fettered by the church structures created by men. And as a result, we've seen some suffer, like Marguerite Porette, burned at the stake. But others could be satisfied in nunneries and in, uh, for lay people, lay women, in more conventional ways, through approved popular works like the Abbey of the Holy Ghost or the measured contemplation of the Devotio Moderna in the 15th century. But now, all that had gone. With no rules in a new situation, some of those mystical explorations turned in strange directions. And so it was in Appenzell in 1524, Appenzell and St. Gallen. Demonstrations of ecstatic religion among women broke out sometimes going as far as to offer themselves in sexual freedom within their elect circle as a sign of the new age which was dawning. Well, these feminine assertions were nearly as disturbing and confusing for male reformers as the violence of the farmers' war in 1525. And they can be seen as having a formative role in creating that early statement of Anabaptist belief, the Schleitheim Articles of 1527, which as you read them, look like an attempt to restrain the radicalism of radicalism. Thus, as so often in Christian history, a revolutionary movement started by suggesting new possibilities to women, and then it slid back into conventional male-dominated paths. Well, radicals did have the advantage, if that's the mot juste, of generally not following Luther in justification by faith. Many of them took up spiritual themes which Erasmus had stressed. They emphasized the spirit over the word. Erasmus's favorite text, John 6, 63, the spirit gives life, but the flesh is of no avail. Radicals hearken to that. And that was liable to turn them in on themselves, to hear the call of the spirit within. And one of the first of such spirituals was, in Luther's eyes, a renegade from Lutheranism, all the more infuriating because of his elevated social status. He was an independent Silesian knight of the crusading Teutonic order, Kaspar Schwenkfeld by name. Now, it may be relevant to the subsequent turn of his theology towards spirit, uh, spiritualism that from 1523, Schwenkfeld became severely deaf. Certainly, later, he mocked the noise of evangelical preaching with the tart observation that the problem with the occupants of Lutheran pulpits was that they wished to bring more people to heaven than God wants there. 
Now, that scepticism was not the most dramatic element in Schwenkfeld's break with Luther. Schwenkfeld embraced a thoroughgoing silence on the sacraments. He was not the only person to take exception to Luther's idiosyncratic opinions on the Lord's Supper, but his disgust at disagreements on a sacrament which was at the centre of his devotional life took him in a remarkable direction. In 1526, he decided that the unseemly bickering justified a complete suspension of the Eucharistic liturgy, complete, a halt or standing still, stillstand, replacing the physical reception of bread and wine by a feeding on Christ's heavenly flesh in one's heart only. Now at first, Schwenkfeld saw this as a temporary suspension, while some general renewal of the church took place across the already divided Reformation. But he was dismayed as this did not happen, as Luther and Zwingli went on fighting and Calvin added his pennyworth later. And so he came to see the Stillstand as a long time necessity. It would have to go on. It must endure until the Spirit of God might choose to reveal the true nature of the sacrament, and then all would be well. But it was not well. And Schenkfeld never received the sacrament again, and his followers did not do so until the 1880s. So spiritual reflection, as envisaged by Schwenkfeld, had revealed a startlingly new approach to Christian silence. Those who followed him now formed a Christian group without any, any outward practice of the Eucharist, or indeed, at first, baptism. Many other spirituals hearkened to Schwenkfeld's call for Stillstand, but now he found a different opponent to Martin Luther, from Martin Luther. His theology clashed profoundly with the other radicalisms to whom the Anabaptist term had direct relevance because of their insistence on adult baptism. They're extremely offended by the Stillstand on baptism. After all, baptism was the center of what they were about. And mainstream Protestants had no hesitation in using the Anabaptist label for Schwenkfelders, but Schwenkfeld's followers were extremely cross to be called Anabaptist, and rightly so. And fiercely they criticized Anabaptists for usurping God's prerogative of restoring the sacraments before he'd sufficiently prepared the church. So big divisions now among radicals as well as among magisterial Protestants. It is very confusing. And that's because once the boundaries of the Western Church had been breached, every traditional doctrine was up for grabs. All of them deserved re-examination, reformulation. Especially true for doctrines decided uh, after the fourth century, after the Emperor Constantine had allied with the once persecuted church and thus ended its integrity. So any decision made by any church council after 305 or whatever, uh, was up for examination. That was an anti-Christian moment in the church. So as a result, radicalism contained not so much a series of neat parties as a spectrum of radicalisms, stretching between two extreme poles of conviction as to how you derive authority in the church. Are Christians to be guided primarily by the promptings of the spirit or by scripture? A spiritualist intellectual, Sebastian Frank, provided a memorable put-down to scripture when he characterized its use without the benefit of the spirit by Protestants or even Anabaptists as creating a paper pope, papyrin papst. For Frank, therefore, the inward word 
inevitably trumped the outer word of the paper pope. By contrast, scriptural Anabaptists, for all their disagreements with Luther, prioritised the authority of the Bible over the Spirit, just as Luther did. There were infinite gradations between the extreme positions in, both, uh, in all this debate. And so Caspar Schwenkfeld uh, found himself out-radicalised by Sebastian Frank. Frank simply rejected all external forms of religion. His mystical version of spiritualism went beyond Schwenkfeld's hopes for any purer church in which the sacraments would be restored once more. For Frank, no church, no sacraments, no formal worship. And a century later, a similar pattern emerged elsewhere. We've been talking about Central Europe, the Holy Roman Empire. Now let's turn our gaze to England. England in the 1630s, 40s, 50s. The background, the political upheaval after the collapse of Charles I's royal authority in 1640-41, rapidly followed by the collapse of coercive authority in the Church of England. Charles was defeated finally in 1646, and that left more than a decade of freedom for new configurations of radicalism to take shape. But it didn't come from nowhere in 1640. You can pick up the strands of it in the 1620s, 1630s, particularly in the University of Cambridge. Interesting sets of undercurrents there. And one person out of that milieu in particular has re, uh, re, been re-excavated by uh, Professor David Como. His name is Je John Everard, a wildly independent-minded Cambridge-educated cleric, alchemist, preaching in various London parishes in the 1620s, 1630s. But it was only after Everard's death that an admirer published a rich selection of his sermons, uh, and it had to wait for the 1650s. Charles I's courts had harassed Everard through his career, and it wouldn't have been safe for him to publish at all during his lifetime. Around 1622, Everard had changed from a conventionally aggressive Puritan preacher through a mystical conversion experience, which sprang out of his considerable and extremely unconventional reading. He published English editions of the Theologia Deutsch and Pseudo-Dionysius. His printed sermons are full of echoes of these writers and other names like Sebastian Frank, but also beyond them to the great Jewish uh, medieval philosopher Moses Maimonides about works of alchemy hovering on the edge of Gnosticism right back to the hermetic literature of the first few Christian centuries. His confident message to his listeners in one sermon reached an extraordinary climax of theosis in metaphors of roaring fire and great oceans. He told his listeners, faithful Christians must travel past the superficial meaning of, of, of scripture, and if they allowed Christ, the persistent fire, to burn up your dross, at length you may be swallowed up and emptied into him, even into that ocean whence you came as all the small rivulets which come from the sea never rest till they return again, again to the sea. So it's that old platonic picture of procession out and return, distilled by pseudo-Dionysius, sounding again in an English pulpit in London in the 1620s. And in the same decade, decade that Eberard was published, a new radical grouping emerged in England, which represented an interesting reconciliation in that split among the radicals of a century before, between spiritual silence on the one hand and Anabaptist insistence on costly public witness on the other. 
Those associated with this came to call themselves Friends of the Truth, while others sneeringly nicknamed them Quakers. Quakers, like the spirituals of the previous century, were just part of the spectrum of the radicalisms now in England. It took time for them to separate out, in particular for activists who publicly celebrated their exemption from all law in the form of prophetic nudity, fornication, swearing and tobacco smoking, which gained them another abusive name from a horrified public, the Ranters. Well, the founder of the Quakers, George Fox, was not above exploiting the name of Ranter as a negative description for any friend who didn't agree with him. And in fact, the early history of Ranterism and Quakerism is much more linked than traditional Quaker historiography has been prepared to admit. Quakers, too, were known to go naked in a symbolic return to Eden and noisily to disrupt public worship in English parish churches, let alone the symbolic triumphal entry into Bristol by the Quaker James Naylor in 1656, imitating Christ's entry into Jerusalem, complete with women strewing branches. They couldn't get palms, but the next best thing on the, the environs of Bristol. No wonder so many in England applauded when their neighbors beat up Quakers, or the authorities rounded Quakers up and imprisoned them. Yet Fox was determined to draw boundaries around the Friends movement, precisely because of the value he placed on the contemplative exploration of inner light. That concept meant as much to him as it had done to hesychasts in orthodoxy long before. But for Fox and the Friends, it had a very different outcome in activism. <coughs> Fox, you'll see by now, was only one in a chain of Protestant radicals who cherished this idea of inner light since the 1520s. His contribution was to apply the inner light principle to congregational worship, to create a society which considered that it had no need for outward sacraments, for sacraments were to be experienced within. And there was a prehistory to this movement in England itself. Fox describes his contact with people who called themselves seekers an interestingly diffident self-designation among the various self-confident dogmatisms of the Reformation. They had been in existence during the years of civil war in the 1640s, even more el elusive and suspicious of organization than the Ranters. They, form, they followed Kaspar Schwenkfeld in seeing all existing forms of church as invalid. They waited on the spirit to inaugurate a better age when formal worship might begin again. And when they gathered as a congregation, if that's what one could call it, it was for long periods of fasting and silence. All this Fox carried into his new congregations, together with a wish to organize, which was very far from the ethos of the seekers. He did not exhibit their tentative approach to the divine. He was endowed with the prophet's enviable gift of self-confidence. He spoke much of the spirit as one would expect from an inner light Christian, but he also talked much of independent-minded friends or obstreperous meetings, disrespectful of his authority, as bearing an unruly, disorderly, lying spirit, a dark, willful spirit, even a dirty spirit. So there was more spirit than one to hearken to and reject. In an urgent pamphlet of 1657, addressed equally to friends and to skeptics, Fox promised to set out the difference betwixt silence and speaking. Very soon, he fastened on the ancient association between light 
and silence in passive contemplation and injected into it a silence now familiar to us from the book of Revelation. I quote, There is none upon the earth that come to have their spirits quieted, but who come to the light that Jesus Christ hath enlightened them withal. Their spirits and minds are quieted in silent waiting upon God in one half hour. More peace and satisfaction than they have had from all other teachers of the world all their lifetime. And he contrasted this apocalyptic Quaker silence with a century of magisterial Protestant preaching. Give over your railing and bawling and backbiting in the pulpits, all people, for that is not to preach the word of God. And he moved to the complementary aspect of Quaker worship. He contrasted the time of waiting with the time of receiving, a time of speaking, in the gift of tongues at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And from there, in a, a tumble of linkages, Fox pulled together Pentecost, Christ's commendation of two or three gathered together, and the popular nickname of his society, all together with the those in the book of Ezra who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away and sat astonished till the evening sacrifice. Trembling, sitting astonished. Classic justifications for the shape of Quaker meetings which have endured to the present day. No preacher should dominate their meetings. All had the same prerogative of speech, praise, or simply of silence. It was a very powerful weapon against hostile outsiders in bad times. The American church historian Horton Davis put it strikingly. Drums might be beaten to stop the meetings of other dissenters at worship, but could do nothing against the silence of the Quakers. Why has the Society of Friends, more than any other Reformation radicalism, managed to keep its balance between contemplation and social activism? One reason may be that uniquely among European radicalisms, Quakers did not wholly reject female activism and new gender patterns in the long term. They were not like those Anabaptist men at Schleitheim in 1527, emphatically distancing themselves from the female mystical testimony they met in St. Gallen and Appenzell. Contrast the most prominent surviving Anabaptist groups at the present day, the family of Mennonite churches, which include the Amish of North America. Unlike the Quakers, Mennonites have mostly found it necessary to withdraw from mainstream society to varying degrees to preserve their version of their radical past in aspic. And vital in that withdrawal has been their strenuous effort to preserve antique patterns of family life and gender relations. By contrast, the Quakers never quite lost the memory of their rather unconventional beginnings in which George Fox formed a spiritual partnership with Margaret, the wife of a long-suffering Cumbrian judge called Thomas Fell, a partnership which, after the elderly judge's death, turned into marriage. The formidable Mrs. Fell had, like, to, like Kaspar Schwenkfeld, the advantage of a higher social status than most of her fellow Quakers. She was one of the leaders within the movement until her death in 1702, Though in later historiography, she's been rather relegated to the role of helpmate and hostess for George Fox. She was not. And in the early years of the movement, there were significant numbers of female Quaker prophets, and they suffered as grievously as the men. 
Although the society did make a remarkable turn towards social respectability from the 1670s and to some extent reigned in female leadership, the fact that it stubbornly resisted the introduction of a male clerical ministry meant that it, this tradition of female assertion never faced the rejection that women leaders experienced in other successor churches to English radicalism. Let's turn to the large part of the Western Church which stayed loyal to the Pope. For decades after Luther's rebellion, there was a struggle about the way forward for these papal loyalists. What would the strategy be? Should they try to listen to what the rebels had to say and press for reunion in the church? Or should the reaction be a firm assertion of traditional certainties? Well, as in radicalism, those are polarities. They're not parties. They're positions to which people inclined. But it is possible to use names for those who gathered at either end of the spectrum. Spirituali, those who were looking to some form of reconciliation, reunion, and zelanti, no surrender. The eventual outcome was a defeat for the spirituali. From 1545, the Council of Trent did its best to build a new church on old foundations, a counter-reformation based on further centralization of the Western Church in Rome, and that was launched very successfully. The spirituali were forced out, and in fact, many of them ended up as extremely radical Protestants, many in Hungary and Poland. The surviving Roman Catholic Church then was committed to reaffirming old certainties, among which, of course, was monasticism. They remembered Erasmus's oblique attack on the regular life, via praising marriage. And so they reaffirmed that celibacy was better than marriage. And so the future of the Roman Catholic Church, despite uh, bleatings from the Holy Roman Emperors, continued to be set in a structurally unaltered celibate clericalism. One corollary of that was that contemplation was an activity best left to the celibate and clerical prof professionals. The subversive shades of Sebastian Frank or Schwenkfeldt hovered behind that thought. In the very last stages of the Council of Trent in 1563, the bishops present declared the inviolability of vows for nuns and male clergy, and they pronounced anathema, the most solemn curse possible, on anyone claiming that the married state excels the state of virginity or celibacy, or that it is better and happier to be united in matrimony than to remain in virginity or celibacy. Well, it's not surprising that the 16th and 17th centuries saw not merely the defense of the existing religious orders, but also their continuing renewal, as they'd, all, as they'd done throughout the medieval period. So in Spain, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross pulled the Carmelite order back to its early commitment, the silence of wilderness. They rediscovered Carmelite tradition. That spilled over into France, where the Cistercians also rediscovered their, their early roots. Nevertheless, much of the most effective promotion of the Counter-Reformation on a worldwide scale was not the work of these monastic orders, but of two brand new organizations, which became closely associated in their work and aims, the Society of Jesus and the Sisters of Ursula, the Ursuline Sisters. Both of these organizations just predated the Counter-Reformation, but they became swept up into it, and you can't imagine Tridentine Catholicism without them. Neither, it's uh, worth emphasizing, were conventional religious orders. It's a solecism to call the Jesuits an order. They are not. They are a society. 
And that suggests their rather amorphous origins as something rather like a religious lay guild, albeit with a rather uh, unusually gifted and talented first membership, Ignatius Loyola, of course, being the most prominent. And the Ursulines, too, spent more than two centuries deftly defeating the plans of anxious bishops to turn them into a conventional order of nuns. What the Jesuits found useful in Ursuline groups and, and therefore supported them in their strategy was their precise ability to undertake pastoral work in the world among women and poor children, two areas uh, in which the Jesuits could not really very easily go. And so Jesuits and Ursuline side by side spearheaded the Counter-Reformation. That's very important for spirituality because neither of these organisations could be called contemplative. They were both activist groups with a ministry in the world. The Jesuits were constantly emphasizing their difference from monks or even friars. In fact, they were rather uncomfortably like the orders of friars, but they, they suppressed that fact. They eliminated two features of religious community, regular gatherings in chapter to make decisions and a daily structure of worship in choir in the community church. And moreover, they, they refused to develop any habit, a distinctive uniform dress. It may seem strange to think of Ignatius Loyola like that, one of the greatest spiritual directors of any Christian age. But look at the exercises, his central spiritual text. It is not a work of contemplative spirituality. It's a systematic effort to train the mind for the purposes of the soul. And silence is a word conspicuous by its absence from the writings and the letters of Loyola. And that may well be precisely because he was determined to keep a distance between his new organization and monasteries. And silence was too closely associated for him with the monastic tradition. And his successors in uh, leading the society were determined to uphold this tradition which he had established. Some of their fellows tried to move towards a contemplative life in the 1580s and 1590s, and it caused very fierce debate, and they were swatted down. They were not allowed to take the society in that direction. Now, that's not to say that Jesuits neglected private prayer. Far from it. They used their pastoral ministry to recommend to the humblest folk that they ministered to traditional techniques and forms of prayer as known in the West. They encouraged the practice of both recitation and prayer formulae and what they slightly awkwardly called mental prayer to complement attendance at the liturgy. You should do these things in private, by yourself, or in little groups of friends, perhaps in a guild. And this emphasis was an essential part of their highly successful public ministry. But what it represented was a democratization of prayer, a democratization of prayer, not of silence. Once more, we're seeing that vital distinction between meditation and contemplation, active meditation, passive surrender in contemplation, which we first encountered back in the fourth century in the writings of Evagrius of Pontus, Evagrius Pontus, Ponticus. And if mystics from Evagrius to the Tridentian age and beyond regarded meditation as only a preparation for contemplation, a step on the journey, the Society of Jesus decided not to encourage people to take that next step, to remain with meditation. 
Not so the monastic orders which recovered from the shock of Protestant disruption, renewed their exploration of the contemplative ethos. We've already mentioned in Spain the renewal of the Carmelite order, the life's work of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. John of the Cross would, in quiet contrast to the Jesuits, refer to the dryness which might result from a failure to move from meditation to contemplation. And the glory of the Counter-Reformation is often seen as these mystics who did embark on the journey. Undeniably, they represent some of the heights of Christian engagement with the silence of the divine. And behind their thought lurks, once more, not just Evagrius, long forgotten in Catholic Spain, but Pseudo-Dionysius, who was not. John of the Cross can explore the negative way to God in language which owes much to Dionysius. Dionysius had spoken of ridding the mind of its contents so that it could pass out into the night, an image which meant so much to the Spanish friar a thousand years later. But the relationship of mystic contemplation with Counter-Reformation Catholicism is as problematic and complicated as that between mystics and the medieval Western Church. And the complication is not simply thanks to that habitually uncomfortable fit between mystical piety and Episcopal Christianity. You can't understand the troubled careers of John and Teresa without the background of late medieval Spain and Portugal, violently transforming themselves from a peninsula of three world faiths into a Christian monoculture, a new character enforced by the Spanish and Portuguese inquisitions. <clears throat> Remember the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492 the steady marginalization of Muslims up to their final expulsion in 1609. And that left a great many people of the Iberian Peninsula in the category contemptuously known by more long-established Iberian Christians as conversos, or even worse, maranos, pigs. And for many, that represented a spiritual limbo, gradually losing contact with their ancestral religions of Judaism and Islam, which had their own deeply rooted traditions of mystical silence, and trying to find some compensatory place in the only religion legally left to them, Christianity. And it's therefore no surprise to find that both Teresa and John of the Cross were from Jewish converso backgrounds. We should see their mystical experiences in the light of a mystical heritage beyond purely Christian resources. They both, interestingly, had bumpy rides towards canonization. Teresa got there only 30 years after her death, but accompanied by much political infighting, while John of the Cross had to wait as late as 17, 1726. Well, at least John and Teresa achieved their sainthood. Less fortunate were the leading figures in the mystical grouping known as the Quietists whose chief protagonist in the eye of the storm was yet another woman, indeed a married woman, usually known to history as Madame Guillon. The chief battleground here was Catholic France. France has been described as having been subjected to a mystical invasion in the half century before Madame Guillon's birth of the early 17th century, as knowledge of the Spanish mystics spread and fueled a remarkable indigenous French movement of devotion. Well, last time I, I compared the thought of Evagrius with one of the earliest heralds of French mysticism, Bishop Francois de Salle. So you see how this connection springs up again anew in France in the 17th century. 
Quietism was much more controversial than Bishop de Salle, and in the end, it represented a defeat for the mystical invaders in this French spiritual golden age. It wasn't exactly a movement, more a national stirring of interest and bitter controversy around one single, fairly short book. Quietism took its inspiration from Teresa and John of the Cross, but it suffered much more long-lasting hostility than they did. Madame Guillon's troubles began with her own artless production of a soon notorious book. Compact, though not quite as short as its title implied, a brief and very easy method of mental prayer. It was Madame Guillon's misfortune to win the admiration of some extremely powerful people at the French court, who in turn, of course, had some extremely powerful enemies. And interestingly, at the heart of all this was extreme hostility from the Jesuits. And there was worse. In a France once more officially returned to a monopoly Catholicism, thanks to Louis XIV's treacherous revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, a newly assertive episcopate was very alert for attempts to foster devotions beyond clerical control. And Madame Guillon felt, fell victim to that prejudice against women writing theology or biblical commentary, which is as old as the founding of the universities. Characteristically, she drew on a very domestic, very female trope, Christ's visit to the two sisters in Bethany, Martha and Mary. And it was Mary sitting passively at the Saviour's feet who gained the Saviour's praise rather than the busy sister Martha. That's a very powerful image from Madame Guillon. And the very title of that treatise, A Brief, Very Easy Method of Mental Prayer, was an explicit invitation to the lowliest French peasant, even those who couldn't read, to explore the mystical way, which she proclaimed as very easy. The Jesuits had sought to bring mental prayer to the poor, and Madame Guillon used that same phrase, but she meant contemplation, not meditation. In a classic fashion, which Evagrius Ponticus would have recognized, she told a path to union with God through surrender, passivity. I quote, abandonment is a letting go of every concern for ourselves so as to let ourselves be led entirely by God, being indifferent to everything, as much for the body as the soul, concerning the good of this world and that of the world to come. Well, any mystic from Evagrius could have said that but she was saying it to peasants. Another of her long unpublished work, Les Torrents, took as, it, as its uh, eponymous controlling metaphor that theme of water, rushing water, which had so fascinated John Everard in England half a century before. And in that work, Madame Guillon describes the journey to union with God in exactly the same terms of the journeys of various rivers flowing into the sea. And the result was imprisonment imprisonment over two decades. Her works eventually ended up, ironically, more esteemed by Protestants than French Catholics. Those noisy Protestants got the point. And the discrediting of mysticism in the French Catholic Church, which resulted, left it with one less spiritual resource against the outbreak of destructive fury, which was the French Revolution. So even the Roman Catholic Church was so affected by Reformation noise that it couldn't utilize one of Christianity's greatest assets, the purposeful deployment of silence. Well, in these two lectures, of last Thursday and this, we've seen the church through three reformations. 
the first two Christian reformations, the iconoclastic controversy in the Eastern Church, then the Gregorian reforms in the West, succeeded in uniting their respective churches in one path of the future. The third, the 16th century Reformation, confounded the confident hopes of the Protestant reformers by its disagreements, its failure totally to destroy the Roman Church, and it ended in division in Western Christianity, which shows no sign of ending. And traditionally, and particularly in the last century of ecumenical endeavors, that has been seen as tragic. But it's possible to view matters differently. Western Europeans who know anything about their history tend to take this united medieval phase of the Western Latin Church for granted, in the way that when we're growing up, we take for granted the environment around us as the norm by which everything else is judged. But that obscures the fact that it is unique in Christian history and unique in human history for a region to be so dominated by a single form of monotheistic religion and its accompanying culture for a thousand-year period. Islam has the concept of the Ummah, but that has nothing of the unity possessed by medieval Western Christendom. In other words, the dominance in the West of the church which looked to the Bishop of Rome was a freak in human experience albeit a freak with profound consequences for the present day. Its breakup in the 16th century was a return to the normality of human and Christian history, rather than some unexpected or even undesirable accident. The division was agonizing, and it aroused the most destructive emotions. In the middle of the struggles of the 16th century, as we've seen, devotional silence proved one of the greatest casualties. But there were other varieties of silence which flourished in that most turbulent of Christian eras. And in my next lecture, I'll begin letting them take their place in a different cut across this historical narrative, which I'll take right back to the beginnings of Christianity and also through to the present day. So that is tomorrow. Thank you. session of, of questions and answers, just to remind you, as I'm sure you're familiar with this, the, the routine, we've, we've got a roving mic, um, and the mic will rove, so uh, if you could please just, just raise your hand and identify yourself, and wait to, to speak, perhaps over here, over there, um, Thank you. Uh, I'm Stephen Bowd. I'm in the Department of History here at University of Edinburgh. Uh, thank you for your talk, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, I've got a comment and a question. First, co the comment is on the Ursulians, and you mentioned their, their role and their particular emphasis on uh, good works or on uh, charitable works. I suppose I'd just comment that looking at Angela, the sort of recent work on Angela Marici, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, emphasizes tending to shift emphasis more towards the mystical and contemplative mm. side of, yeah. of what they're doing yeah. uh, and what she's doing. And she's sort of coming from and going to a, a, and working in a context of uh, mystic women who are being lent around the, ma the, the Italian mainland. Mm. The, all these Italian aristocrats have their sort of pet. Yeah. mystic women and she seems to be connected with these and they're writing to each other saying can you lend me your you know send me so and so and, and so there's all that but i take yeah. your point but your point still stands that uh, for the 
for the counter-reformation, the broader story mm. that Ursulians are about, about that active work. So it's just a comment. Mm. Shall, I, shall I come back on that? Um, I, I, you could say the same about Ignatius, yes. that to start with, uh, there's a very different feel to the man. And I, I think in both orders, there, well, orders, uh, both these societies, there is a feeling that uh, the Inquisition will be far too interested in them if they go on being spiritual in that way. Because clearly, the, the first generation of Jesuits are spirituali, and they could have been on, on, the, on the flames as much as anyone else. Well, to pick up on the spirituality point, just my question is uh, on uh, Reginald Paul. Mm. Uh, <laughs> always <laughs> an interesting figure. You, yeah. you, one of the things which has struck me, I mean, reading Tom Mayer's work and then reading yours, is that I've, I wonder why, question, question which is why doesn't or why does Paul seem reluctant or fail to re-establish monasteries in England on his return? Um, and uh, you suggest in your book, Reformation, how Europe is divided, that it's because of the, the really logistical problems, you know, that, that that's caused that, that's a lot of money to do that. But I wonder whether it's also his Erasmian or spirituality roots showing uh, there that he believes in a more contemporary, you know, he's, he's skeptical, in an Erasmian way, skeptical of the, of the, of the monasteries. I'll, I'll just quickly to identify Reginald Poole, for those who don't know, um, cousin of Henry VIII, sent into exile for opposing uh, the break with Rome and the Aragon uh, annulment, cardinal, spirituale, later back as Archbishop of Canterbury under Mary. And the point of this question is, why so few refoundation of monasteries under Mary Tudor? Well, I, I think well, Eamon Duffy has convinced me that actually Poole is behind the refoundation of Westminster Abbey. Which, which looks a very Italian sort of Benedictine house. The, the last surviving monk uh, re reminisced about it and said it was not like the monasteries which he remembered as a boy. It was much more like an Oxbridge college. And that suggests uh, something like those very learned uh, Benedictine houses of, uh, of Italy. And I think the, the other point is that it, it, five years, what can you do? I mean, Benedictine monasteries are extremely expensive to found. And we know of at least two efforts which were just getting off the ground when Mary died, Glastonbury and St Albans. Very interesting, St Albans is actually an urban initiative. Uh, but I, I'm very impressed by that aspect of Eamon Duffy's fires of faith. It does seem to me that we're, we're now seeing a much more dynamic pool under uh, Mary, rather more like the Cardinal of the 1530s. But I think he's also very aware that he's got to watch his back against uh, Pope Paul IV, uh, uh, a vicious lunatic. And uh, he... Paul a great hater. A great hater, a great hater indeed. And uh, if, if Paul had got back to Italy, he, he would have perished in the, in, on the stake. And, and Paul must... Well, Paul knew that. So there are, there are all Sorry. sorts of currents. Yeah. Sorry, we're... We, we're getting. We're getting too involved. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, no, we, we need to move on. Yep. Sorry. In the history of silence in the church in this period, I was wondering what do you think is the place of, of looking at the sacrament, um, things like monstrances and exposition, and also these big um, Renaissance and Baroque churches where everyone can look at the altar? Very good point indeed, yes. Churches are, are redesigned in the Counter-Reformation. It's the Jesuits who really do it. Uh, the, the prototype is their, their first big church, which isn't in Rome, it's in Lisbon. Uh, and there uh, you've got a simple rectangular box 
uh, from which you can see uh, any position in that church, you can see the sacrament reserved in that new thing, the tabernacle, actually created by Cardinal Poole's Mary in England. Uh, and so that does become really, really important. And the Quarantore devotion, which is one of those great Jesuit inventions of uh, all the drama of the church focused on something which is silent, which is there, and, and you gaze at it. And that, that's actually a very significant point, and uh, I think I might talk a bit more about that in the book when I create the book. They're just waiting for the book, I believe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that, that's probably conclusive for this evening. Thank you very much. I think we're all looking forward to the next instalment. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.